welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. Ron already stole my joke about everyone being nice and warm in the back, so I won't go there. But I hope you guys are, it feels very pleasant. There, it's pretty chilly down here. Um, this morning, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're moving right along in our study of Paul's first letter to his younger co-worker in the faith, Timothy. We've seen the gospel clearly declared and defended. And then at the end of chapter 2, Paul showed us the beauty of God's way designing the male and female relationship, which is for His glory and for our good. Paul is teaching these things and what follows so that Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and so that we would know what the church of the living God should look like in the midst of a fallen world. Though this world is fallen and rejects the truth, the church, the household of God, is to be like a pillar of or an essential structural support to this truth. We hold high the truth above every other imagination of mankind. The scribe, the scholar, the wisest men of this age are as fools if they stand in opposition to this truth. The truth that at its very center states that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. As we strive to hold high this truth, the Lord has given us specific instructions in His Word on how we can do this best. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, Paul gives the answer to the question, who should lead and teach the local church? Please understand the significance of this question for each and every one of us, especially here at Agape. We are going through this letter to Timothy and specifically the concept of leading and teaching the church so that we can know what right looks like. And then, once we know, then to do it together with one voice as a church. Agape has grown and matured to the point where it is time for the members of the church, of this church, the congregation, to formally have our united voices heard in regards to who should lead and teach us. Up until this point in our history, Agape has been led and taught by men who served as church planting pastors. These men were typically evaluated, appointed, and sent out by other established congregations to plant new churches. So that the truth will continue to expand into all the world. Think of Paul's ministry as he went out and planted churches. Currently, there are two church planting pastors at Agape. My father, Pastor Brian Crane, and myself. That at some point in every church plant, as the members grow in number, in knowledge, and in holiness, the question must be formally asked of the whole congregation... Do you want these men, whoever they are, to lead and teach you? 
And then another question like it should, should rapidly follow. Which additional men from among the, our congregation, the people who are here and some who are ill today but are part of the members of our church, which additional men should be leading and teaching us as well? I say all this not because we are going to do this today, but because this question will, will be asked of the members of, of Agape, our members, in the near future. And each one of us should understand the significance of the Lord's instructions for His church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we'll study today. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for Agape, this local church this family of believers who have many for a very long time loved one another well and served one another well. I pray that the unity of this body of believers would continue and would only grow. Lord, I thank you for all that you are doing and that you are accomplishing. May you receive the glory and the praise and honor forever and ever. Lord, I pray that as we study this uh, passage of Scripture together, that you would open our hearts to hear your word. Lord, that you give each one of us wisdom and understanding. And Father, if there be any men sitting in this room today that have a desire, maybe just a small flame of desire to serve you by leading and teaching your church, Lord, that today's study, that your word would cause that flame to jump into a fire, into a desire that is spirit-driven and church-affirmed. Would you do this uh, today, Lord, as we come to your word? In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon for today is a simple question. Should these men lead and teach us? And we're going to focus on this question for the rest of the sermon. Let's jump into the text and hear the answer that the Lord gives through his servant, Paul. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul begins with the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. No matter what people say or how you might feel about the topic of leading and teaching the church, God declares that to serve the church in this way 
is a noble or good task. We see that the <clears throat> sorry, we next see that evaluation for this task is open to any man in the church. We spent much time studying 1 Timothy 2 where Paul made it very clear that God has only called men to lead and teach the gathered church. So I will not argue that point here, but it is important to note that in verse 1 Paul makes it clear that any man can aspire to this task. You don't have to be a Jew or of the tribe of Levi or Judah. Significant in Paul's day is that this task was open to slaves or bond servants in the church. A man's race, ethnicity, skin color, wealth, or social status did not determine whether or not he could be evaluated for this task. Instead, in verse 1, Paul only says that if a man aspires or desires this task, he desires a good work to do, a noble task. So before a man is to be evaluated for this task, he must first express his desire to serve in this good work. This thought aligns with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Peter says to the elders of the church, shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Before a man is ever evaluated for the task of leading and teaching the church, he must express a God-given desire to serve the church in this way. This desire typically grows over time. It may start as a small flame in the heart of a new convert, or it may grow out of hearing the encouragement of your brothers and sisters as they see God's gifting in you in these areas. If there is a man in this room who senses this call of God, the God-given desire to shepherd the church of God, then I encourage you as Paul encouraged Timothy in his second letter, to fan into flame the gift of God. Do not leave a God-given desire to serve Him and minister to His saints as smoldering coals that lie dormant, about to go out. Instead, devote yourself to the Word, to prayer, and to the fellowship of the saints. Serve the Lord with gladness wherever you're at. And see the gift of God jump into flame as you expectantly pursue Him, pursue His glory through your own life. Paul next gives us a name for the one who serves the church through leading and teaching. He says, if any man desires the office of overseer, this English phrase translates one Greek word, episcope, which literally means to look intently on something and then provide exactly what is needed. That's what overseer means. Thus the word overseer, one who cares deeply, looks intently and acts appropriately to provide what is needed for his charge. In the New Testament, there are other words that describe the same responsibility. 
Paul himself uses the title elder in chapter 5, verse 17. And in several places, you will find the elders of a church called to shepherd or pastor the flock of God. As we read earlier in 1 Peter. These terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament and are given the same duties and responsibilities. And here at Agape, we understand overseer, bishop, elder, and pastor all to be the same role in the the church. These terms identify qualified men in the church who have been appointed by the church to lead and teach them. Because the task of shepherding God's church is a good and worthy task, Paul states in verse 2 that an overseer must meet certain minimum requirements. And we will briefly look at each one. First, an overseer must be above reproach. To be above reproach is a legal term which means to be blameless. It does not mean perfect or without any sin. But it does mean that if an accusation is flung at you, then it would not be able to stick to your character. It would indeed be a false accusation. There should not be any obvious reason why the name of Jesus would be reproached because of your way of life. Next, the overseer must be the husband of one wife. Literally, this phrase means man of one woman or a one-woman man. There is much debate about this phrase, but I, believe the mo- but I believe the most faithful interpretation is that this phrase describes the consistent testimony of a man's passion and devotion. Does this man display a consistent testimony of being passionately devoted to to one woman, his wife. In contrast with, or in contrast to a man who has split or inconsistent devotion, it would be an error to claim that this passage disqualifies single men, widowed men, or widowed men who have been remarried. Instead, ask the question, does this man through his, through his life Hold high the sanctity of the one flesh nature of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. When Potiphar's Egyptian wife attempted to seduce Joseph, what was his response to her? He says this, How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he walks away. I think we could all agree that even though Joseph was not married, he was at that time living as a one-woman man. This may raise the question in your mind, but what about men who have been divorced in their past? I don't think anyone should be too quick to make a blanket statement on this topic. After all, we're talking about those, or we're talking about who these men are now, and what is their consistent testimony Can we trust them? Should we follow the godly example of this man? For example, there are Christian men whose unbelieving wife has left them 
And because of situations like this, it is always wise to first hear the situation out before making or pronouncing judgment. Paul next says, next says that an overseer must be sober-minded. This word emphasizes the sober or vigilant nature of the man's mind. Figuratively, he must be free from intoxicating sin or distraction, ready to fight off the attacks of the devil. Think with me of Gideon. As he prepares the Israelites to fight the enemies of God, God instructs Gideon to take the volunteer fighters down to a spring of water to test them. You can imagine it's hot and dusty and all the men are thirsty, and in their thirst, some bend down on all fours and drink from the spring with their faces to the water. They couldn't see anything except for what was right in front of them. But 300 of the men scooped up the water in one hand and kept vigilant watch while they drank. God told Gideon to set apart those men to take part in the victory that God had promised. They kept Vigilant watch against the attack of an enemy. Next, an overseer must be self-controlled. This is to be well-balanced or safe. This man safely regulates and balances his own life according to God's standard. An overseer must be respectable. This comes from the Greek word cosmos, which describes the world as God created it, orderly or in order. God's good creation was not chaotic. It was beautifully in order. Anyone could look at God's handiwork and respect what he had made. And it would be unwise to appoint a man as an overseer of God's church if his own life is in chaos. An overseer must be hospitable, this literally means loving strangers with special emphasis on welcoming Christians into your own home. This doesn't mean that your pastor has to be the life of the party, but instead emphasizes the pastor's willingness to be inconvenienced even in his own home for the sake of loving the family of God and advancing God's kingdom. An overseer must be able to teach. The majority of requirements that we will look at today direct our attention to the character of the man, but this requirement directs our attention to the ability of the man. It does make sense. If a man desires to lead and teach the household of God, then it helps a lot if he is able to teach or skilled at teaching. This does not mean that all pastors of the church must be equally skilled at teaching, or that they will equally split the teaching responsibility. And in, in chapter 5, verse 17, it is implied that some elders may labor in the teaching ministry more than others. In chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This implies that there will often be pastors who spend more of their time, in fact, the majority of their time and energy, laboring in the ministry of preaching and teaching. 
However, it is essential that every pastor of the church is able to teach the Word of God simply and clearly, without serious error. This requires that the man who desires this good work be a faithful student of the Word. We read these words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, as Paul elaborates on what it means to be a skillful teacher or skillful at teaching. He says to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker or a laborer who does not need to be ashamed because he's rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly teaching, explaining the word of truth. This verse charges Timothy to be diligent in his study and understanding of the words of God. To come to the word as a student who first must be taught. Who must first learn God's way. Then and only then will Timothy be able to rightly divide or teach accurately the word of truth. In verse 3, Paul goes on to say that an overseer must not be a drunkard. Literally, someone who lingers long at the container filled with wine. So, with the implication that his cup can be filled multiple times, that's causing him to get drunk. In Paul's day, the primary form of substance abuse was drunkenness. But today, there are far more options available to us. But the principle is still the same, whether wine, sugar, caffeine, or painkillers. The shepherd of the flock of God is not to be controlled by addictions. Instead, he is to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Next, an overseer must not be violent. He is not a brawler or physically contentious. One author wrote this, he doesn't walk around with his, fin- with his fists clenched. Next, an overseer must be gentle. This is the opposite of violent and quarrelsome. This man is fair, reasonable, moderate, willing to give up his way, if possible, out of love for others. Even though he had the power and the right to demand what he wanted. Is is that not what every Christian husband and godly leader is called to do? To prefer others, even though you have the power and the right to demand your way or to demand your comfort. To only use your power and authority to serve and protect the family. This is what it means to be gentle. An overseer must not be quarrelsome. This literally means to abstain from fighting, to be peaceable. It is not entirely clear, but this word is most likely speaking about the man's desire to avoid unnecessary verbal disputes. We already know from a previous characteristic that the overseer cannot be someone who goes around looking for physical fights, but the overseer should also avoid unnecessary arguments that only breed division in the family of God. An overseer should be skilled at diffusing unnecessary disputes within the family. 
Next, an overseer must not be a lover of money. This word literally means not in love with silver. When I read this phrase, I immediately thought of two people. First, Judah, who loved silver more than his own younger brother and sold Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, loved silver more than he loved Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and sold him to be crucified for 30 pieces of silver. And in 1 Timothy 6, verses 5-10, through 10, Paul will point to this temptation as it appears in the church. He says in verse 5 that certain people were imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They thought through their godliness they would gain silver. Verse 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It is not a sin to earn money save money, invest money, or even see your money increase. It is not a sin to be wealthy. In fact, Christians are called to work and pray that they would have enough to provide for their own needs and then have enough left over so that they can be a blessing to the poor in their church or in their community. And later in chapter 6, Paul doesn't tell the wealthy in the Ephesian church to get rid of their wealth. Instead, he writes this, beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, or it's another word for proud, arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. Though having wealth or earning a good paycheck is not a sin, it is a sin and will provide a snare or will prove a snare to your soul if you put your hope in riches rather than in God. So here is the question. Does the man who aspires to the office of overseer have a reputation for loving God and neighbor even if it costs him his silver? In verse 4, Paul breaks from listing standalone character qualifications and gives special attention to certain areas of an overseer's life. Paul says he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Literally, to put before or to rule the house 
that belongs to you nobly, honorably, rightly, or beautifully. This goes back to our previous studies in 1 Timothy that point to husbands and fathers as the primary leader and spiritual teacher of their own homes. The scriptures are clear. Husbands and fathers must stand before their families to lead them. And husbands and fathers will stand before God to give an account of how they led their families. When we stand before the Lord, many Christian husbands and fathers will receive great reward and honor for how they led their families because it is a noble task. But other Christian husbands and fathers will sadly receive little to no reward because they made more of an impression on their couch than they made on their family. Paul says that the godly man rules with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. No matter where dignity is placed in in that verse, in your translation, in the Greek it is clear that the father is the one who is dignified in his character and leadership of his children. We're not to envision a dignified child who walks around soberly. This word dignity could also be translated as honor, gravity, seriousness, or weightiness. It does not mean a person never smiles or laughs. I believe, I do believe a dignified man can still have a sense of humor. But the leadership and character of a dignified man cannot be a joke, something to be laughed at or not taken seriously. A godly man's children are lovingly yet firmly taught and disciplined in such a way that the children all see without a shadow of a doubt the dignity of their father and begin to increase in the joy of willingly submitting to his leadership. A young child typically submits out of a mixture of fear and love of the dignity of his his father. But as that child grows, the fear should fall away. And what remains is a powerful love. Is that not the same thing that every Christian experiences as they encounter the dignity of Yahweh? The creator, God, the judge of all the earth? Fear of this God is indeed the beginning of wisdom. But perfect love, mature and complete love that understands the mercy of the Father, that love drives out fear. When you consider a man for the office of overseer, is it a beautiful thing to watch his dignified leadership of those under his care? Why is this so important? Well, in verse 5, Paul makes this logical conclusion. He says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? By this, Paul, uh, Paul repeats the biblical principle of first proving yourself faithful in what you currently have. 
before taking on greater responsibility. Think on the words of Jesus um, to his disciples and to the Pharisees. We read his words in Luke 16, verse 10. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So when evaluating a man for the office of overseer, consider carefully the the condition of what... Sorry, let me re-say that. When evaluating, evaluating a man for the office of overseer, consider carefully the condition of that which is currently in his care. Because there is every reason to believe that your church will begin to mirror that condition. In verse 6, we read that an overseer must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul is identifying an Achilles heel of every man. Pride. Pride can ruin young and old, trained and untrained, foolish or wise. It can ruin them all. But Paul specifically singles out the danger of elevating a new convert, someone who was recently planted in the faith. Those who are young in the faith instead should rejoice in growing and maturing, allowing their spiritual roots to dig deep so that they will first be grounded in their faith. Maturity in the faith brings with it humility before God and others. Therefore, no matter how passionate, popular, or gifted a new believer is, do not call him to be an overseer, because you will tempt him to fall into the same condemnation of the devil. Lucifer's great sin was that he became proud in his exalted position among the heavenly hosts. And in his pride, he became puffed puffed up with conceit or blinded by his pride and then attempted to reach out and take what was God's alone, God's glory. Paul warns that there is great danger for the new convert of falling prey to the same temptation, to become proud before God and your brothers and sisters if you are elevated before evidencing the humility that comes with spiritual maturity. Finally, Paul says in verse 7, an overseer must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The devil sets many traps, many pitfalls filled with reproach and shame. One of these traps is for the Christian's testimony to be worthless because he acts as one way when he is with the church And then another way when he goes out into the world. Think of how damaging it is to the Christian's testimony, to the influence of our local church, and to the name of Christ when an overseer, elder, or pastor is known for being rude and impatient towards waitresses. Is known on his street as that neighbor, the one who doesn't care and isn't friendly is known for being a nightmare to his employees. 
is known as the dad that insults and yells at the ref at his son's rugby match. Or is known as a man who speaks disparagingly, disparagingly or in an insulting way about other cultures, races, just people who don't look and sound like him. When you consider a man for the office of overseer, would his unsaved neighbors at least consider coming to your church simply because they respect him as a godly man? Or does this man repel even those that God is drawing? This passage could be preached over several Sundays. But there is value in seeing the whole picture in one sitting. We will continue to study this passage in our men's leadership breakfast each month. And we will return to this passage and passages like it when men step forward announcing their desire to oversee the household of God to join in this ministry of the word. But for now, dwell on these qualities. They are not just for pastors. As you revisit each one of these qualities, you begin to realize that all Christian men are called to be and to do these things. Even the responsibility to teach is the responsibility of every Christian husband and father in his own home. Dwell on these things. Aspire to these things, all for the glory of our great God and for the good of His people. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is clear. And I thank You that it is powerful in our lives. Lord, I again pray that there, if there are any men in this room who aspire to the office of overseer, that aspire to serve and to lay down their own lives for others through the ministry of the word and prayer and in leading or that you would help them as they seek to to fan into flame your gifts to them. Lord, would you bless our church with this? It is a blessing to have men and women who love you and who serve you faithfully. Would you continue to bless our church with that? And Lord, would you give us wisdom and unity in the days ahead as we seek to live out your word and be faithful to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.